It's good to be with you today. It's good to be with you in opening, beginning a new study in the book of Second Peter. And one of the things that is just uh, true and that I want you to revel in this morning is that the Word of God is not theoretical. The Word of God is true. It's impactful. It has implications. It, it helps us. It determines um, what we believe, who we believe God is, who we believe Jesus is, and who we believe we are in conjunction with that. As we looked at 1 Peter for uh, several months, one of the things that we saw in 1 Peter is that Peter was writing to a church where there, were, there was persecution and suffering coming from outside the church in, and in a form of persecution. And as we open up the book of Second Peter, one of the things you're going to see is that the danger is coming from within. A group of people who are um, spreading false doctrine and, and heresy. And so the danger is from within the church. And you're going to come to see, as we look this morning, and as we journey through this book together, you're going to come to see how knowledge, how Peter puts up knowledge of God, knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the key to standing firm and overcoming this danger of being swept away by this horrible doctrine. Now this morning I want to start by uh, telling you about a, a friend of mine named Tim. Tim was a man that... Uh, I met Tim when I was at Crossroads Church. Uh, when I was at Crossroads, there was a trailer that was across uh, the parking lot from the church. Um, Tim and his wife came in two Great Pyrenees, came to live in this trailer. Uh, the trailer was in awful condition. Uh, it was rat infested. It was infested with cockroaches. It was, a, it was a really bad place to be living. And so Tim, with these two Great Pyrenees would come to the church, asked us if he could come over and walk his dogs in, the, in, our, in our backyard. We had this huge playground, so we said sure. So he'd come over there and uh, smoke cigarettes, and we would always run out there when Tim was over there. Uh, Tim was a great guy. We loved talking with him and joking around. Um, but as, as you know, probably, or you may not know, but when you're a pastor and you're talking with someone who's not in church, all of a sudden they start opening up to you about... Um, uh, how they're working on getting uh, back with the Lord. And so this is what Tim started doing. And it was real quickly we realized that Tim had a great misunderstanding of what it meant to be a Christian. According to Tim, when he was young, he got his fire insurance. He prayed a prayer. And then what happened the rest of his life is that um, when things were going bad for him, he would try to do better so that God may show him favor and so he could get things back. And so Tim was in the middle of this place. He was so ashamed of where his lifestyle had taken him. He, he was um, in mid-level management at Erlanger doing something. I forget now what he did back then. And at this point, he was uh, literally on the brink of homelessness, uh, jobless, living in this trailer, and he was just ashamed. He was sh so ashamed of where his lifestyle had taken him that he hadn't been in contact with his kids for years. Just really at rock bottom. And so his goal was, if I can just be better, maybe God will bless me and God will give me all my stuff back. This was his theology. 
two of the elders at this church spent uh, just about every day with them. And they began to share with him about the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. They began to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. They began to share with him what his relationship with God could be and who God really was and who Jesus really was and who he really was in conjunction with God. And God opened up Tim's eyes and Tim accepted Christ as his Savior and Tim was a changed man. His passions, his fervor, his goals in life no longer were hanging on getting out from under that trailer or getting stuff back or getting jobs back. But his passion really did become, he was just blown away that God would love him. It, it was amazing to sit in Bible studies and we would ask, hey, does anybody have a, a something they just want to share with the group? And he, he would always talk about how, what God had done in his life. And Tim, Tim was a character uh, before, um, in his earlier, previous life, uh, he was... As he was a middle-level management at Erlanger, he was also in a, in a, in a hair band. Uh, and I saw pictures of him all glammed up with makeup and high, you know, high heels and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and Tim just was, so he started helping out with sound. In fact, as uh, some of the changes around here happened, uh, Tim was working with the guy that installed some of the sound. So Tim spent about a week up here uh, about a year or so ago. And Tim has always stayed in contact with me about five years ago. Uh, found out that Tim had cancer, brain cancer. And I, as I was scrolling back through some of the messages that Tim had sent me over the years, um, just some things just ring true, that Tim would talk about his brain cancer and talk about how the doctors weren't in control of his fate, but that God was. And the doctors would say, Tim, I have some really bad news for you. And he would say, Doctor, I've got some really good news for you. And it was amazing. There was even a doctor at Vanderbilt that refused to retire until Tim uh, was no longer his patient. He, he extended his retirement. Tim shared the gospel, shared the message of Jesus Christ everywhere that he went. And he, he didn't do it in the cleaned up way that you know, we probably should do it. In fact, as I said earlier, if I ever got text messages from Tim, even up until a month or so ago, I would, I'd have to read it before my kids did because I never knew quite what Tim was going to say. Or the language that he would use. Tim died on Monday. Complications of chemotherapy. The cancer was back. The cancer has, it was ravaging his body over the past five years. Tim passed away on Monday. And um, it was amazing as I just kind of went back through those text messages. Of this mixture of fear. Over the cancer. Um, and hope. Of because of what God had done in his life, the hope that Tim had. And, and, and as he was striving towards godliness, every message that I, almost every message I had from Tim uh, talked about um, his striving. And, and he, he even used words like this. Through being at crossroads, how did he put it? He said, you, you helped me, you helped uh, the church helped me to understand the truths of the Bible. And he had a phrase that I'm forgetting now that he used. But basically, that we took the time for this young baby newborn to teach and preach the Word of God to him so that he could grow in his knowledge. And he talked about how him growing in that knowledge prepared him 
for the tidal wave, which was cancer. And that he was able to stand firm because of the knowledge that he had about who God was, who Christ was, and who he was in relation to that. And those two elders, particularly one of them, uh, a man by the name of Dwayne, uh, literally up until the time of Tim's death, probably spent every single day with Tim, discipling him, loving him, uh, encouraging him, uh, rebuking him when he needed rebuking. I think what Tim went through, Tim's transformation, what Tim was clinging to, that power we find in this book. We find in this book of Second Peter the hope the, the, the foundation that keeps us strong so that whatever life, whatever in life, whatever it throws our way, that we can stand strong. That, that like Tim, many of us have been surrounded by and we hear in our culture all sorts of false doctrines, all sort of false ideas about who God is and how we should be living and what Christian living is about. And it's 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 all twisted and and perverse. And this book helps us, calls us back and, and tells us how we can stand firm in a world that is trying to pollute us by polluting the gospel. In this book, what we will see is the knowledge of God and Christ and who we are leads to grace being multiplied in us and peace being multiplied in us. And so this morning... I am excited about this journey and I'm excited about this introduction to this book because this introduction, these two verses have so much packed into it. And one of the dangers in reading the Bible is sometimes I, I did this in my Bible reading this morning that I get to a list of names and I just kind of skip just kind of real fast. I'd like to tell you that I in-depth study every name. Sometimes we do this with introductions to books of the Bible. And I, I hope that what you see this morning is two things. Number one is that even the introductory of the books of the Bible are God inspired. And then number two, there's a purpose in it. And what we see as we look at this introduction is we see some just brilliant things that Peter brings to light that are foundational to this book and to the purpose and theme of this book. So let's jump in right away and see that at the very beginning it says Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know the word, if you have studied commentaries on Second Peter, you will know that there's a lot of uh, theories about who actually wrote this book. And I think Peter actually wrote this book. I'm just going to leave it at that. If you want to talk about that later on, I'm more than happy to do that. But I think that Simon Peter wrote this book. It's interesting here. Uh, and we'll get into this more in just a minute, that it, when he says Simon Peter, uh, actually he uses the Jewish form of the name Simon, so it would be Simeon Peter, uh, not the Greek. He uses the Jewish form, so that's just interesting. It kind of sticks out, and I think there might be a reason. We'll get into that in a second. But then notice, as Peter is introducing himself, notice that he first says that he is a bondservant and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I think this is, Hugely important. 
And the idea of him calling himself a bondservant, we know that this is not like American slavery where people are forced into servitude against their will and against what, uh, the, the, you know, taken from a foreign, foreign land, forced on a ship, forced over here and forced into servitude. That being a bondservant was willfully submitting yourself to an authority for, for the purpose of working for that person. And, and Peter here, Peter here introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so what he is doing is he is saying any authority that he has doesn't come from himself, but it comes from the one to whom he serves. It comes from Jesus Christ. Any honor, any honor that he has is not the honor of, that's, that's to be brought to him, but it's the honor of the authority that's over him, who is Jesus, his Lord. And he says he's a bondservant and an apostle. He's an eyewitness. He is a messenger And so in a sense, what Peter is saying is that if you've got an argument with anything that I'm saying in this letter, take it up with Jesus. (laughs) Because he's the one to whom I am serving. He's the one to whom I am writing, uh, on whose behalf I am writing this letter. So next, Peter then jumps in and and, and tells us about the audience. Now, he he doesn't give us like in 1 Peter where he says, to those in Asia Minor. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I write you a second letter. And so I think it's very likely that he is writing again to these same groups of churches, but it's not necessary to, to hold that. What's important, what's important is how Peter introduces the people that he's writing to. And in introducing them in this way, he is bringing something out of the text that he wants them to remember. It's kind of like when Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, he's writing to this church that has gone really kind of crazy and he calls them saints and that he's calling them to this. Remember who you are, saints, the sanctified. Remember who you are, Peter, in a very similar way. He's not writing to to honorary Christians here, but he is reminding them of who they are. And so I want you to see this. First, it says to those who have received a faith. To those who have received a faith. And when he says, when he talks about faith here, uh, he's not talking about a tradition uh, of, of faith. He's talking about actual belief to those who have received a belief. And there's an important word here in the text. This word for receive is the same word that is used over and over again in the New Testament uh, concerning casting lots. And you may think, well, that's weird. Think about it. When the apostles... Um, you know, after Judas uh, hung himself and they decided that they needed to uh, appoint another apostle, we see the apostles doing what? Casting lots. And they didn't believe that by casting lots that there was just some chance happenstance that was going on. What they believed is that God was divinely ordering the casting of lots and that the, the person to whom these lots fell was the person that God had appointed for them. And so the word here, what, it's, what it brings with it in its original language is that to those who have received a faith, a divinely inspired, a divinely given faith. And so what he's telling them, first of all, about this faith is that it is given to you by God. The second thing that we see, notice it says, of the same kind as ours. And what in the world is Peter talking about? The wording here is awesome, where it talks about the same kind of ours. 
it's a, this is a great translation. It could also be said as precious as ours or equal value as ours. And I think there are two possibilities of what Peter means by the same kind as ours. One, I do think what he could mean is talking about himself as an apostle. As he writes this letter, he, he talks about the faith that's handed down from the fathers, the prophets, the apostles to you. And so one of the things that he could be saying is that the same faith that I have as an apostle, the same faith that their forefathers had, this is the same faith that God has given you. Another possibility, which I really like the idea of, is that he could be talking about the split in the church between the Jew and the Gentile. And so when he says the same kind of faith, he's saying there's not a different kind of faith from a Gentile to a Jew, that it's all the same type of faith. This might be the reason why he uses Simeon at the beginning of this letter instead of Simon. That he could be bringing, he could be really emphasizing this point that Jew, Gentile, it's the same faith. Either way, the point is the same. And this is huge. He is saying to the recipients of this letter, this faith that you have been given is the same. It's as equal value. It's as precious as ours. Whether he's saying as an apostle or as a Jew, that it's the same faith. Now, one of the things that happens to me as a pastor is that um, oftentimes as people are talking to me as a minister, um, that they act like I've got a different type of faith than they do. Uh, There was one man that used to email me every six months, and he would ask me to pray for certain things, and he would say he would want me to pray for it because he knew that God heard my prayers, meaning that God may not hear his prayers. That's wrong. Missionaries on the field will often say things like this. I've heard many missionaries tell me this, that one of the struggles with having groups come visit them is that the groups treat them as if they're super Christians who don't have any struggles and whose faith is just way more than anybody else's. And so, you know, one of the things that one missionary couple I was talking to one time, I just asked, what do you wish that people just knew about the missionary life? And they said, I wish they knew that our faith and our belief was the same. Brothers and sisters, what Peter is telling the recipients of this letter and what he is telling you this morning is that the faith that you have received is the same faith that the apostles had. Notice he doesn't stop there. To those who have received a faith that's the same kind as ours, by, so the way that this faith is is, is granted to you is by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. And this is an interesting way to say this. So what he is saying is that the faith that we have was given to us by the sinless Savior. That Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, was perfectly righteous, was the spotless lamb, was put to death, rose from the grave, and, and now lives victorious with God. And it's through that righteous, perfect sacrifice that you have been given and granted faith. And so Peter is working really, really hard in doubling down on this idea that you, believer, your confidence is not in yourself. It's not in your own righteousness. It's not in a faith that you can muster up. 
but it's in a faith and righteousness that has been given to you. And therefore, because that is where your security, that is where your uh, steadfastness comes from, stand firm is what he's going to tell us uh, over the next couple of weeks. And there's another thing that's just interesting here. And I love how Jesus, how Peter talks about our Savior Jesus. And this is just one of the ways I love how Peter does this. Um, Notice, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in the original language, what is going on here? And everybody agrees that Peter is calling Jesus God. That Peter, at the very beginning of this letter, in this introduction, is pushing its readers to have a high view of who Jesus Christ is, even calling him God. Now, Peter knows that there's God, uh, God, God, and Jesus, our Savior, who is also God. Because notice in verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And there in the Greek, it's two distinct people. Peter didn't have a fully developed understanding of the Trinity. But that Peter knew, what he knew and what he experienced is that he knew that Jesus Christ is God. We could have a whole sermon there, but we won't this morning. The massive point that he is bringing home in the introduction of this letter, and don't miss this, is that he is telling his readers, the the Christians who belong to this church, this is who you are. This is who you are. Trust in this. Next, notice in the second verse, we see the theme that I think runs throughout the whole book. And here it is. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you were to go to the end of this letter, notice um, in, uh, notice in verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this whole idea, this whole idea of being steadfast and standing firm by growing in grace through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're going to see um, how this plays itself out. But for right now, what I want to tell you is, is that Peter is not talking about the kind of knowledge that puffs up and promotes yourself. Peter is talking about the kind of knowledge that produces dependence, where we recognize our need, and it puts us in this position to see God's glory where we experience peace and safety. Because the problem that Peter was addressing was that there were threats in the church. There were false teachers in the church. And these false teachers can be described in in two ways. There were two things that they were doing, and I think they're actually combined. The first thing, and we'll see a little bit of this in a moment, but they were promoting lawlessness. They were promoting sensuality. They were uh, promoting unrestrained, ungodly pleasure. The second thing they were doing is they, they were denying the second coming of Christ, and they were denying the judgment of 
of, of Christ in his second coming. And you can see how those two things could be pushed together, that if Christ is not returning, if there is no judgment of Christ, then live however you want. And these people were promoting this, and Peter is writing to remind them of the truth. Look in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have established and have been established in the truth which is present in you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by the way of reminder. In chapter 3, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Peter is writing them to stir them up by way of reminder. And it's fascinating here, and I can't wait till we get there, especially in chapter 3, where Peter not only reminds them of Scripture, the sacred writings that had gone on beforehand. But if you notice, Peter, as he's writing this letter, already considers the writings of the apostles as Scripture. And so that's going to be something great to look at when we get there. Now, what I want you to see very quickly is that there are three types of people uh, that we see in this letter. And we're going to address these people over and over over the next couple of months. But the first person that I want you to see are the deceivers. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction Their destruction is not asleep. Verse 14 and 15 of this same chapter. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way that they they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam. And then in chapter 3 verses 4 and then 16. And saying where is the promise of his coming? Here's the false doctrine. That these people are saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. Denying that Jesus is coming back again. And we see again in verse 16. As also in all his letters, speak, talking of Paul, speaking in, them, speaking in them of these things, some of which are things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. They're deceiving. They're trying to get people to follow in the ways of their sensuality. They are denying the second coming. They are distorting scriptures. They are from within the church, but they are not of the church. And there are many in our day and age that are doing the exact same thing. You don't have to go very far on the Internet, at the bookstore or on TV to find false teachers parading around as being from us, but they are not really of us. They are not holding true to the sacred scriptures and the sacred writings 
Instead, they are enticing people away. And we're going to spend some time talking about that over the next months. The second group that you see in this text is the church, uh, the, the believers. And I want to use wording here that I think is very helpful. And I think Peter brings this out in his language. And so the wording I'm going to use for Christians is striving Christians. Striving Christians. I just, just look at ver- in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. And notice the language here. Now for this very reason also, applying... All diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, notice that they are moving. They're increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Also look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I think it's so helpful to think about the Christian life and the Christian journey in terms of striving. I think the way we see ourselves, if we see ourselves wrongly, Uh, then there's great danger there. And one way that we see ourselves wrongly is that if you think as a Christian, you have already arrived. Kind of like my friend Tim, who said a prayer when he was young, and he thought that he had already arrived, and there was no striving, there was no progress, there was no movement in his life, and he was in danger because of what he thought being a Christian meant, he was in danger and had, was being enticed away from the true knowledge of who God is and what He requires of us. Uh, another danger is uh, the, the, the Christian that's always defeated. The, the Christian that sees maybe the commands in the Bible, that may even have heard in those verses of supply, 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 do this, do this, do this, and they are like, oh, I am a horrible, awful Christian, and that they are already defeated, and they see the Christian life as uh, this, this huge mountain like Mount Everest, and they are defeated, and so they never strive. They never strive. They just roll over. And this is a very dangerous place to be as well. We are to be striving people. We are to know, we are to know that we are not what we were, but we are not yet what we will be, that we are in process. The Christian life should be one where we look back and we look back over the in my case over the years of being a Christian and say, "My goodness, I can't believe uh, how God has changed me, but yet there's always a sense of sorrow that I'm I'm not who I want to be yet." Does that make sense? This is the striving Christian that I think we see in this book. Now, and that this, this causes us, puts us in the right place, which is when we look at these commands, it makes us dependent upon the grace of God, dependent upon the knowledge of God. It gives, puts us in a needy position, which makes us strong and secure as we stand in this grace and peace. Now, the third group that we're going to see over the next couple of months are those that are in danger. And in some ways, all of us need to take the warnings of this book. But Peter uh, goes into some detail about talking about people who are especially in danger. And notice 
We've read this verse all over, but I want uh, we've read this verse already, but I want you to hear it again. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing, notice this, unstable souls. That there's there's a person here who is being enticed and they are an unstable soul. Again, in verse 18 of chapter two, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires and sensu- by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. In the book of Jude, which is, um, has a lot of parallels to Second Peter, and um, so much so that they think that uh, the, the authors of these two books knew... Um, knew about each other's writings. And again, we don't have time to go into that, but there's there's very similar themes. And at the end of the book of Jude, notice this in verse um, 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I think the writer of the book of Jude, uh, that I love the way he says, snatching them out of the fire. And I view these people in Second Peter who are unstable and who are being lured away, that it's our job as the believers to snatch them out of the fire. And in some way, my buddy Tim, these two elders at Crossroads, snatched him out of the fire. And I believe that with all that's in me. And so who are these people? Who would be the people that are in danger? And I think it's people that are, that are maybe new Christians. A lot of times I know new believers who um, are, are gloriously saved and they're not connected to a church or to good, solid discipling, uh, discipling process. And so they, maybe they're saved through... Uh, hearing something, maybe somebody at work, and then they go home and start watching TV and maybe get on to some of these preachers who are not preaching the Word of God. Or maybe they get involved, there's another person at work and says, oh, you became a Christian, come to my Bible study, and it's a heretical, cult-like Bible study, and they kind of get enticed away. Maybe it's people who have never been taught how to read and study the Word of God. The best example I can think of this, and, and uh, I, I, I think I saw them at the pavilion this morning, um, is that if you were to take Whit Jones, a, a class in literature from Whit Jones, and you were, to, um, you were to, to maybe, let's say you're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and as a student, you just, take, you just took one sentence. You didn't think about anything else that C.S. Lewis said in that. You just took one little sentence, took it out of context, and wrote a whole paper on that one sentence that, that you created the context yourself. Wit is going to give you an F. But yet, there are false teachers and pastors and authors who do this all the time. They take verses out of the Bible, twist them to meet their fancy, and entice people to come over to their side. So those who don't know how to read the Bible are in danger of being carried away here as well. And those who don't know the path to holiness. Now, one of the things that we see 
is that Peter, Peter says that the solution to this is knowledge. I'm just going to read parts of verses all throughout this letter. Peter says, through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He says, through our knowledge of Him. For this very reason, make every effort to add to goodness knowledge. Keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And since you already know this, be on your guard. That Peter, it is apparent he is emphasizing knowledge here. But I want us to be careful. What Peter is not telling us is that you, the kind of knowledge that he's promoting is not what we call just a mere head knowledge. That when Peter talks about knowledge, he is talking about information about who God is. But the expectation of Peter is that this information that we are getting, this knowledge we are getting, teaches us about who our Lord and Savior is. And so we're growing not only in our knowledge, but in our fellowship with who God is. It's not just facts. It's the head and the heart. And there is a problem if we have one without the other. For those Christians who are all heart, they are at danger at being carried away because they are at danger of being manipulated by emotion and by heartfelt uh, pulling on the heartstrings over into error. I'll give you one. When, he, when we're talking about sin, for those who are in churches who don't stand on sin and biblical definitions of sin... There is a pulling on the heartstrings of would God really send anybody to hell? On the other side, so 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 all heart, passion unfettered will destroy you, could destroy you. On the other side, all head knowledge is dead orthodoxy. It's dead orthodoxy and it's never what the Bible intended. And if you're all head, you will dry up and die. The goal of Peter is to help us grow in our intimacy with Christ. And this changes us. It, it, it moves us into a direction. And what we're going to see, even starting in the next couple of weeks, is how this knowledge uh, puts in us a passion and desire to be more like him. And we're going to see this. In this great letter. Now. One of the other things that we see from our text this morning. Is this whole idea of grace being multiplied to us through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, as I read some of the letters to you from the elders. One of the elders talked about the means of grace that we have been given as a church. And one of the things that I think really fits nicely with, um, with our, our sermon and our text this morning is the idea of, of closing our sermon by taking the Lord's Supper together. And if you think about it, and, and if you don't have one of those and are inside this morning, uh, Spate, if you'll raise your hand, Spate will, or John, or Bill, uh, whoever that guy is, uh, never seen him before, he's in a mask, uh, will, will hand it to you. But one of the things that we see in this text, in 1 Corinthians, was that Paul, when speaking of the Lord's Supper, 
Notice in verse 26. No, in verse 25. He said that in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we are taking the Lord's Supper, one of the means of grace through communion, which we receive, is that we are to take this in remembrance of Jesus and who he is. And what happens when we do this, when we remember Jesus through communion, a grace that is given to us is that we see who this precious Savior is and what He did for us and that He has brought us into His family. This is awesome. That is one aspect of communion. The other aspect of communion is that by doing this together, we are demonstrating what binds us together as believers. And there are are some of you who, um, for... For right reasons, maybe you have a loved one living in your home that can't be exposed to COVID or it might be deadly to them. Or maybe that you are in a health condition yourself or in a category uh, which you don't need to be here uh, because you could be exposed uh, to, you know, something that could be deadly yourself. But I want to be an encouragement to you that if you are at a place where you can come and you can partake not only of communion with us, but in fellowship with us. There is something about the means of grace of being face to face that God uses to build us up and to help us to stand strong. Because as we meet together and this morning take communion and and look at what binds us together, it actually strengthens us in our faith. It helps us to stand strong. It helps us to go throughout our week. And so we are glad to be able to. For those of you who are not able to be here, to, to be able to, 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 to give this to you so that you can partake with us. And for those of you who, who could be here, I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you that it's, it's a, it, it is a, a special means of grace, as one of our elders said last week. So we're going to celebrate this together. And these are new. Um, and so what you will do is there's a film on top. And if you will peel that back, it will reveal... The wafer. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And then if you will pull back the second tab. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It is so uplifting to be reminded this morning. To be stirred up about the faith that's been given to us. About the righteousness that becomes ours that was purchased by your son. That we have a God and Savior who is not distant or far off, but is active in our lives, helping us. 
helping us to stand firm. God, help us to constantly stay in that position of being a needy, dependent people. It is there we find our strength and our courage and our boldness to stand firm. God, we thank you for your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand and sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all.